Cersei 7. Much Ado About Navies, a.k.a. Drinking to Forget. It's the chapter with the infamous Mirish Swamp. The lure of Taina, an olive-skinned, black-haired beauty from the East, is a great fit for another Cersei chapter full of rabbit holes. How many rabbit holes? Quote, A thousand ships. I was talking about rabbit holes, but it's the same point. A thousand rabbit holes. As I had said last time, I think it was, or maybe, no, actually it was elsewhere. I think I brought it up in, I'm not sure where I brought it up, but there is a lot of Helen of Troy slash the Iliad slash the Trojan War references. I had written a huge number of them for this chapter, then realizing how big this episode was getting, I pulled them all and sat them aside and put them in a document called The Trojan War of Five Kings. And we'll have some side standalone episode to make comparisons because there's so many. I want to bring up, Sean even brought it up on his own when he sent us a message. Yeah, Sean, we did not talk about this with Sean. He noticed it too. Um, Of course, that is a direct reference to Helen of Troy, a face that launched a thousand ships. And Taina, I mentioned what she looks like. Olive skin, black haired beauty from the East. That's from the East sounds like, you know, Troy or what have you from a perspective of a Grecian person. And a Grecian person being olive skinned and black haired, that is completely normal. So the themes are here. The implied power of sex and in owning beauty are parallel themes here as well taking possession of something because it's the most beautiful, wanting to own that thing as a source of power. Uh, Yeah. Jamie, in the chapter right after this, is going to think of Jane Westerling thusly, she must be fair indeed to have been worth a kingdom. Exactly. Another Trojan War reference or Trojan War-themed reference, Iliad, whatever, whichever version, whatever story version you want to call it. It's all basically the same thing. There's there's some minor differences, but we're referring to the same general storyline. So we have these vibes coming up a lot. Take these examples, plus the Ironborn plot, this very, this Marjorie fleet thing. The so-called younger, more beautiful queen is Marjorie that Cersei thinks, which is exactly what Helen of Troy is supposed to be, the most beautiful queen, et cetera. So it's like a double deception here. These themes are so well mixed. It's, it's almost hard to, sort them out because they all overlap each other. It's just so beautifully done. Full controlled chaos. The Ironborn, however, are moving so quickly. They don't even care to hold the Shield Islands. All this discussion in this chapter about what to do, how to take the Shield Islands back. And they do need to be taken back. But Euron's, as we know, is using them as a diversion. They've sent a huge portion of their strength, this perceived but not actually a thousand ships, to take Daenerys who is the actual younger, more beautiful queen in the prophecy, most likely. So <laughs> so you see what I mean here. There's the themes that are being addressed by the characters and the actual under-the-radar themes that are really going on that we readers are uh, keyed in on. And beyond all that, there's this real-world mythology theme of, of the Trojan War backing it all up. Very, very well done, George. So much mingled into one. So what is happening here is also vaguely reminiscent of the Trojan War in other ways, which is rulers and their responsibility. What is the, what is the responsibility of a ruler? That's an overarching theme for all these recent chapters, perhaps for the book. What is the job of a liege? Um, is it their job to uplift the common people? Is it to deal with the nobles? Is it all, is it all these things? Well, pre- preventing your people from harm. From especially outside harm is the primary obligation of a liege. Without any philosoph- uh, without any philosophy, without any like questioning, what is the true duty of a liege? Explicitly, 
they are supposed to protect their followers. That is at the core, as I've said many times, of the vassal overlord relationship of feudal society is you protect me, I give you taxes and soldiers. So if they don't protect, if the overlord doesn't protect the vassal, it's a fair point that they have abdicated their duty and thus the vassal is no longer obligated to support the overlord. That's at the heart of the justification for Robert's Rebellion, which Arius was clearly just picking off nobles for no, no good reason. Maybe in a few cases he had a good reason, but too often he was just executing folk without just cause or without due process or with anything that resembled what should be the, the way the vassals and overlords handle these things. Cersei is abdicating her responsibility very clearly, doing the opposite of her duty by arguing that it's not her job to do this, at least not to prioritize it. She's sort of like waffling a little on whether it's her job at all, but she's certainly saying it's not as important as taking Dragonstone and these other things. She says, well, yeah, it matters, but you can take care of yourself because blah, 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 this other stuff. And that's infuriating for a vassal to hear. <laughs> and, and Marjorie, it's infuriating to her on a personal level as well. And this is really different. This is very different. We'll, we'll get into this in a minute. Marjorie's reaction is very interesting here. So she's, and she's done the same thing with the faith. It's very much in line with Cersei's, oh, you take care of your own problems thing. I want to bask in the glory of being queen. The queen, I get all this. You have to do the work. <laughs> Cersei, again, does not really grasp the responsibilities of queen. She, she acts like, oh, no one understands. No one listens to me. If they would just do what I say, this would all be fine. And she also thinks of how much she's owed rather than thinking of her responsibilities, uh, something that Stannis wrestled with quite a lot and got to the other side of. She's done, like I said, she's done the same thing with the faith. Rather than protect the faith, which was the sworn duty as, a, as agreed on by Jaehaerys, he said, well, you guys have to disarm y'all faithful, but we will protect you in exchange for that. Cersei's like, um, I don't really want to do the protecting you part. And she's like, well, then, well, then we've got a problem. She's like, okay, you can protect yourselves then. Just, I don't need that responsibility. Go ahead and do it yourself. And that's what's happening here. She's like, go ahead and take the shield islands back yourself. You're, you're capable of that. <laughs> Not realizing how bad an idea this is. Cersei brings up the point about the Reach not being attacked by the Ironborn since Dagon Greyjoy's day. We brought up how, you know, it used to be more common, but it's now it's, it still happens, but it's uncommon. But, and it has happened, and this isn't living memory, but it's not that far back. This is only about 100 years ago. Nina writes that she's more on the nose with this than she realizes. A criticism of Bloodraven, a fair one, the Ironborn attack on the West Coast during the reign of Ares I, again, about 100 years ago, a little less, but in, the, in, the, in his attempt to ensure that the realm would be safe from the threat of the Blackfires, Bloodraven just ignored the West Coast because he was more worried about the East Coast, and that caused big problems. So Cersei's doing the same thing. Like, nah, the problems on the East are bigger, even though she probably could have handled both. She probably could have diverted some attention to the East. She, I mean, to the West. She probably could have handled both. It really wasn't a one or the other kind of situation. But she made it seem that way. She spelled it out that way. And that's basically how Bloodraven was. And that was a big problem because a big argument against the reign that Bloodraven was protecting was that same argument. They're not protecting the people they're supposed to. They're not, there's, there's unrest. There's 
outside aggressors that the crown is not stopping. And that's a dereliction of duty. Thus, that argues for maybe, hey, maybe a Black Fire King would be better. Which, aren't we about to be right back there? Even if it may not be explicitly a Black Fire King, if a lot of people are looking at Aegon like, wouldn't this guy take his responsibilities more seriously? He looks like a character that is more responsible than Cersei. He seems to be noble and concerned with fighting the enemies of the realm rather than leaving the realm to fight its own battles. These very same arguments are addressed here by these different candidates kind of without necessarily saying anything. It's just the, their actions speak to these things. So yeah, very good comparison to Bloodraven there and how he undermined the authority of the Iron Throne by similar means, by not stepping up to the same enemy, the Ironborn, the Greyjoys even. And here's another reason it's so bad. Here's another reason it's anti-power. If Cersei wants to lock down the Seven Kingdoms, she wants them to follow her, then she should not be suggesting that they move towards self-sufficiency. If they're self-sufficient, if they can defend themselves against external threats, why do they need the Iron Throne? If they can't rely on the Iron Throne, then why do they need the Iron Throne? Why should they give the Iron Throne anything if it won't do anything for them? If they can fight these external threats off, then it's only a hop, skip, and a jump to fighting off the Iron Throne's overlordship. So Cersei's pushing them towards the very thing she doesn't want them to be pushed towards. So it's just very self-destructive. It's another example of Cersei doing something that is completely opposite her own goals. She's anti-pragmatic here, very self-destructive. Now, here's a good question raised by a not very smart man. What of your new Dromans? Asked Sir Aris. The longships of the Ironmen cannot stand before our Dromans, surely. King Robert's hammer is the mightiest warship in all Westeros. She was, said Waters. Sweet Cersei will be her equal once complete, and Lord Tywin will be twice the size of either. Only half are fitted out, however, and none is fully crude. Even when they are, the numbers would be greatly against us. The common longship is small compared to our galleys. This is true, but the Iron Men have larger ships as well. Lord Balon's great kraken and the warships of the Iron Fleet were made for battle, not for raids. They are the equal of our lesser war galleys in speed and strength, and most are better crewed and captains. The Iron Men live their whole lives at sea. Well, yes, that is all very true. Everything he said there is true. Or Rainwaters is not an honest man, but I agree with everything there, except he's one thing he's not lying about, but is wrong about. It may actually, it's funny because it makes Sir Harry's right accidentally is that he brings up the Iron Fleet and how they have larger ships that are the size of regular warships, large and formidable and capable of beating the Royal Navy except that they were just sent east to go to Slaver's Bay. Euron sent specifically those larger ships under Victarion, who controls them you know, as captain of the Iron Fleet. That is the ones that left. So surely a few of the lesser ships, of the big ships, may be still around. But the majority of these ones they're worried about facing aren't even <laughs> in the side of the world anymore. So they're backing down from something that they maybe are more equipped to handle than they think, except for these other points that are very, very accurate. The last one, 
paramount, most paramount of all, perhaps, which is the ironborn live their whole lives at sea and their crews are superior. Now, Orain would probably exaggerate this anyway, because he doesn't want to get involved in this. He doesn't want to go fight the ironborn with his new ships. He's probably thinking of switching sides, or maybe this is one of the things that pushes him more towards that. We're not really sure at what stage his thinking is, where his ambition was, whether he reacted to the situation and decided to take off with these ships because of it, or whether he was planning it all along. It's not really clear. Either way, this is not arguing for him to stay. (laughs) He does not want to go take his soon-to-be-stolen ships and get them into battle where he may not have them anymore. He wants to keep them. (laughs) So... So Cersei is arguing his point well for him here because Cersei doesn't want to send them over there either. And he's like, yeah, well, they're not really ready yet, etc. Also, Nina points out his probable ancestor, Alan Valerian, a.k.a. Oakenfist, was sent to go deal with Dagon or Dalton Greyjoy during the, or after the Dance of the Dragons ended because the, the war ended, but Dalton Greyjoy was still taking advantage of the chaos that needed to be stopped. But he, Dalton Greyjoy, died before Oakenfist got there. He was sailing there and then showed up and was like, oh, okay, never mind. I wonder, we, we wonder too whether when Euron dies, whether the Ironborn will collapse in on themselves as they fight for the scraps that's left behind. Because if Euron extends like a, an empire of sorts, a temporary empire of sorts, and they control all this territory, that's a lot of power for them to fight over once he dies. And so they could have a similar situation. Uh, Dalton Greyjoy, by the way, was assassinated by just one of his lovers, by a, maybe a sex worker or someone he forced to be a sex worker, a person with just one name, and maybe that is how Euron will go. Who knows? So here's another little bit in terms of Cersei's reaction to Marjorie and the news. The little queen is making excuses for her brother. Cersei's mouth was dry. I need a cup of Arbor Gold... If the Iron Men decided to take the Arbor next, the whole realm might soon be going thirsty. Indeed, take the Arbor next. (laughs) We haven't seen the whole realm go thirsty yet, but I wonder about that. And it's very metaphorical because Arbor Gold is associated with this very strong theme of sweet lies. And if the realm casts off its sweet lies, if the realm isn't able to tell itself these sweet lies to make itself calm and protected or feel good or whatever have you, and it's replaced by the brutal truths of Euron Greyjoy and shade of the evening and facing the fact that the gods aren't real, that they're, the gods don't care about kin slaying and all these other harsh truths that Euron wishes to inflict upon the world. Well, that's really going somewhere, isn't it? Now, we, have, uh, we dedicated an episode to these themes last week with Chloe of Girls Gone Canon and Drunk a Song of Ice and Fire History. We did a whole episode on Lies and Arbor Gold. And so we go a lot deeper into those themes there. Chloe was excellent. So yeah, here's about Marjorie's composure. This is really interesting. Marjorie's always got her sort of like court face on around Cersei. She's always ready with the right lines. She's very clever. And, but here she's not rehearsed. Here she's very much speaking from the heart, it seems like. She gives Cersei, she speaks to Cersei a lot differently. She's not dressed for court. Her hair's like a mess and, you know, she clearly didn't take time to get ready, which is, what well, she doesn't need to be ready, but it's still, this is the first time we've seen her like this. And she doesn't mask her feelings behind her courtly exterior, which is normal for people to do. 
We've seen this with Cersei and Marjorie, and Marjorie's really good at it. But this is so this is a different mode for her. She's really feeling this. This really matters to her. Her worry about Loras is genuine and justified, as we see. Uh, I mean, unless they're lying to us about what happened to him, which is possible. We'll talk about that more later. So she's being honest with almost everything here. And that's interesting to see that her humanity come come out. We we obviously aren't thinking of her as someone like Cersei, but it's real easy to substitute show Marjorie for book Marjorie, who got a lot more screen time, who ha- was a lot more fleshed out, uh, and, is, and is older uh, on the show as well, has more agency. So this is interesting to see. This is a more of a glimpse into what book Marjorie is really like, and that she has a lot of real decency in her. She really does seem to care. Like, this does not affect her directly until Loras makes his, his move and says, I want to go and do this brave thing, this bold, brave maneuver here. Until then, it was only her people. She's worried about the Shield Islands. She's worried about this and that. Her family wasn't directly impacted. None of her friends were suffering as far as we know. So this is good leadership. This is taking to heart the plight of people who are her subordinates. And that is a good example of a liege, or at least the daughter of a liege, person in high, a high position of authority, the soon-to-be queen, etc., taking responsibility. And this is another thing that I think bothers Cersei, is it's, Marjorie's just better at this. Her reaction is more in line with what a queen should be reacting facing down the enemies, reacting, taking it seriously, not just immediately throwing blame around and saying, okay, well, who do we blame? Who screwed up? You know, who do we, who's just making excuses here? Marjorie is probably aware of all those possibilities that, yeah, maybe they were, maybe the defenses weren't as strong as they should be. But so what? We're past that now. Yeah, maybe the defenses could be stronger. That's something to worry about for next time when we get the shield islands back. Right now, people are suffering. And you, it's so easy to take Marjorie's side, just because not just because she's right, <laughs> not just because Cersei is terrible in so many ways, but because we do see the awful, awful treatment of the people on the Shield Islands by Euron and his people, the other Ironborn. So we know that Marjorie's insistence that this needs to happen as quickly as possible is right. She's not just using this to force a political agenda. She's not just saying, oh, the reach is more important in these other places. It's not favoritism. It's not political. It's not about getting power. It's not about ambition. It's about being a good leader, which Cersei does not recognize. Cersei does not know what that looks like. Her model for good leadership is her father. And Tywin, well, Tywin would respond to this more like Marjorie, not with the emotions, but with the, yes, we need to do the duty of the leader here. He wouldn't feel sad. He wouldn't feel oh my God, we got to help these people. But he would understand the bottom lines expected of him and would not shirk those duties, not not out of compassion, but because not doing the duty of a liege makes him less of a liege. It takes away their power if they don't perform the the duties expected of them. Cersei doesn't get that. She's undermining herself by not stepping up here. So uh, we also have Cersei with Loras here, another example where she, she... it's so evil. She laughs at Loris's rush headlong to near death here. And she impugned his manhood. Seeing this incredibly brave act doesn't change her mind, though. She just looks at him as effeminate. 
I, before I was doubting that she knows Loris is gay, but I think reading ahead a little farther, there's been a couple other clues that, yeah, she knows. She knows. Either way, there she dislikes Loris for a lot of reasons, and I think the main reason is him being a Tyrell. <laughs> and she just can't give her, give an inch here, even when Loris is being extremely brave and doing what a knight should do, sacrificing himself. I mean, it's really interesting to consider Brienne here, who, you know, Brienne and Loris have, I wouldn't say they're at odds anymore necessarily. Brienne doesn't hate Loris. Loris still has some feelings for Brienne that are not so positive. But under different circumstances, the two would really respect each other, I think. If it wasn't for Renly, <laughs> the thing in between them that mm, gets in the way, maybe. And of course, not blaming Renly, just mm, he's the thing that <laughs> certainly they come together on that they may not agree on. Anyway, so it's, it's, uh, it's another lo- no chance, no choice moment here for Loris. Or his, his no chance, no choice moment, but he's going to maybe die because of it. Whereas in Brienne's case, she almost dies and is saved by someone else, but she's badly disfigured as well. Uh, if Loris does survive and the stories are accurate, he was shot by crossbow bolts, he was hit by boiling oil, so he won't be the same person if, even if he manages to survive. And this is, an- this is another statement why Loris hates Brienne. He- he's of the same ilk. He thinks, look, from his perspective, it's very simple. Renly was found lying there dead and Brienne wasn't. If your king is dead, you should have died defending them. Loras obviously wasn't factoring in Shadow Baby in his calculus here. So for him, it was only he can only imagine human foes. So he says, very straightforward, and he's not being a hypocrite because he would have died for Renly too. We know he's not just saying that. He can have this attitude and not be a hypocrite just like Brienne can, although very few others can. So that's why they can come down really hard and say, this is not knightly behavior. I would act differently. And, well, we've seen that this is true. They both would. Again, Pycelle and Cersei are on opposite sides of, of an argument. Cersei makes no sense by suggesting that the Ironborn and Stannis are working together. And yet she pushes the argument and thinks she's right. She's like, how can they be so stupid and not see this possibility? Meanwhile, we can't see inside their heads, but clearly they're thinking, how can she be this stupid? (laughs) And I side with Pycelle and Marjorie. Like, how can she think this? Well, she's good at convincing herself of things that just aren't true because uh, they fit her worldview, which is very, very warped. Hmm. Not considering the type of person. Basically, this is something that Tywin was much better at too. Something that she thinks she's good at that, she, that she's not that good at, which is Tywin was, was obviously had a lot of flaws in his leadership style. I've certainly criticized plenty of things about him. But one thing he was pretty good at was, was understanding people's personality and how they behave. He obviously got that wrong with Rob Stark, but he got it right with people like Stannis, people like Mace Tyrell, people like Doran Martell, things like that. Cersei expects everyone else to think like her, to think they're all paranoid and out to get everyone else. She's always thinking the worst. And yeah, it's not the best attitude. Interesting parallel. She thinks Robert should have scoured the Isles. Like when he took the Iron Islands back after the rebellion against him, he should have just wiped them all out, which that is similar to what Aegon the Conqueror was told to do um, after the world of uh, after the conquest himself, and here's a quote from the world of ice and fire. 
On the mainland, some urged Aegon to make the ironborn vassals to Lord Tully of Riverrun, whom he had named Lord Paramount of the Trident. Others suggested that the islands be given to Casterly Rock. A few went so far as to implore him to scour the isles clean with dragon flame, putting an end to the scourge of the ironborn for all time. What he actually did, Aegon, was let them choose their own ruler, like a lord's moot. That's how the Greyjoys got the Isles in the first place. Vicon Greyjoy got the Seastone Chair after Aegon's dragons forged the Iron Throne. A very similar idea to what Euron has suggested to Victorian. He says, after I take the Iron Throne, you get the Seastone Chair. And so if Euron gets a dragon, it'd be a bit of a parallel there to Aegon. Dragons taking the Iron Throne, giving the Greyjoys the Seastone Chair, etc. Yeah, somewhat similar. Vicon could not allow his people to reeve against the mainland anymore, lest he face the wrath of the conqueror or his descendants. And he's very adamant in telling his son, Goran Greyjoy, only a fool would go up against the dragons. Now, of course, we're in an era without dragons. But that same rule has been held up. The Ironborn don't reeve in Westeros, except for during a few isolated times when they've gone against the Iron Throne. And all those times were in the either in the post-dragon era or during the Dance of the Dragons is one exception when Dalton Greyjoy took a side. So that wasn't really against, that was against the dragons, but he also had dragons on his side. So in any case, this entered a new era, a new era of Ironborn reaving style, which was they couldn't, they could no longer just reave locally. They couldn't just go attack the Reach. They couldn't go attack places like the Shields or the Arbor or Old Town anymore. Those were, those days were long gone. So they would have to sail to other realms to attack like the Summer Islands or the Stepstones or et cetera. And this is still in place now. That's kind of how Euron got his, made his bones, so to speak. That's how, how mafioso get accepted into the mafia. They make their bones. And uh, a lot of mafia organizations, you have to kill someone to, get, oh. to be accepted. Okay, to prove your loyalty. You so, it is, to... so making your bones, it is kind of literal as killing someone. But no, it doesn't have anything to do with actual bones. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, Euron took this farther. Like the Ironborn of the last few hundred years have to travel farther to do their reaving and raiding. Euron went even farther than that. And now we're back to a time where they have free reign again. Like that's part of what they're so excited about. Like, wow, we can finally attack these places that our, that our, that our ancestors were able to attack without having to travel halfway around the world to do our thing. This is part of why they love Euron uh, so much because he's opened all these targets back up for them. Again, Cersei just has this terrible prejudice that's very much in line with the way men talk about other men and look down on people who are not whole. Uh, She thinks that oaf Mace Tyrell left the defense of the Reach in the hands of a hapless weakling. She doesn't know Willis Tyrell at all. She doesn't know anything about him other than he has a bad leg. And so for that reason, she thinks he's, he sucks. You know, she thinks he's weak because he is into poetry and horses. So he must not be a good leader, which is a, obviously a terrible way to think. It doesn't make any sense. So she is not only denigrating him as a mistake uh, of personality, but it's a strategic error too, to think that, this guy is incapable because of something's wrong with his leg. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. We've seen a lot of people who 
lose a part of their body and become stronger because of it. They become stronger in other areas. Like uh, someone becomes blind, a lot of times their other senses become more powerful. So I would think more like the opposite. I would think that Willis might be quite formidable in the brain because, uh, well, he's not able to be a very physical person because his leg doesn't work properly. So I would, (laughs) this is almost backwards from Cersei. She should perhaps consider the possibility that he's quite formidable. And she, uh, this is also herself projecting. She always assumes people are trying to shirk responsibility or cover their own mistakes because she does that. She doesn't take responsibility. She blames other people for her failures, so she just assumes that's what everyone else is doing. And we see this. It's, it's so much so funny. The, 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 the council that she's put around her is so reflective of that. One of them, was it Orton Merriweather says, oh yeah, Stannis, that makes a lot of sense. You're clever to have seen that, Cersei. <laughs> It's like, what? This guy. So he's backing her up on something that's totally dumb. But that's what he's there for. That's why she put him there, because he'll do stuff like that. And she doesn't see how self-defeating that is. Because she sees acceptance and loyalty as the true, most important thing about power. Not about ruling well, not about organization, not about loyal winning loyalty. It's about having loyalty. Taking it, not earning it. Here's an interesting little quote from Loras. He says, pirates out of mere and lease, you mean? Loras said with contempt. The scum of the free cities? That's when Cersei suggests that they hire cell sales to make up for the lack of ships to go take back the arbor, or to take back the shields. It's actually not a horrible suggestion. I mean, hiring cell sales when they're short of ships is not such a bad idea. What's funny, though, is these are the same pirates that Stannis has recently run out of money to pay, although he might be about to have money to pay them again from the Iron Bank, which he's only going to have that money because Cersei's not paying the Iron Bank. So again, Cersei is creating these problems herself without realizing it. So yeah, actually hiring Salador San might not be the worst idea, but they don't have the money for that. <laughs> she's Instead of hiring cell sales, she's spending money on new ships that she's not going to have for very long either. What's better Sell sales that you might, that might run away, that might not do the job that you pay them for, or a royal fleet that definitely does that. <laughs> Joe points out that this might be goodbye to Loras. Loras, uh, you know, there's a chance that we've been misled, as Cersei has, about what happened on Dragonstone. But there's a quite likely chance that we haven't been much misled at all. And Loras is slowly dying and will be dead soon, and we may not ever see him again. So it'd be kind of odd to have him die off screen. He's not such an important character that I would deny his death because it's happening off screen, like I do with Davos. Like Davos dying off screen, we know he's, he didn't, but we knew that a lot of people suspected that at the time. It's like Davos dead off screen? That seems unlikely. Loras, I don't think, is quite prominent enough. He's certainly not nearly as prominent as Davos. He, he, you might see him that way because of the TV show, but he wasn't even that big on the TV yeah, show. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't a POV, for example. Yeah. Which is a difference with, with Davos. Like, he just had more screen time. You know, he has a lot of screen time, but a lot of times he's just there uh, and, and referred to, but he's not driving the action that much. I don't know. I wouldn't argue with someone who says he's too important to die off screen, but I don't agree. I think he's... I think if he dies off screen, I wouldn't be that surprised. Speaking of, uh, Roland Storm is the commander of the garrison there, the Castellan at uh, Dragonstone, left by Stannis. He was one of the ones that helped Davos spring Edric Storm, which uh, is another sign that Stannis was 
you know, fairly forgiving about that. He obviously forgave Davos, but he also forgave this guy uh, for doing that. That uh, Stannish at least took heart in that these men were doing the right thing as they saw it, and especially after he was convinced that it was the right thing. Yeah, good feather in Stannis's cap there that Cersei here is not living up to. So she does at least acknowledge that Roland Storm is dangerous and is looking forward to Loras <laughs> dying to him. Uh, and we don't actually know what happened to him. He may have died in the battle as well or been captured, who knows. Taina Merriweather, sort of a honeypot, but interestingly, <sighs> this is almost a miss because Cersei Tana, uh, Cersei doesn't really want sex as it comes out. Like, she doesn't come out of this feeling good about it. I doubt Tana does either, because uh, it's very rapey. And she's trying to be like Robert, let's be honest. She's very much trying to be like Robert. Cersei is more vulnerable to subterfuge and intrigue here by Tana being her friend than by being available uh, for sex. Like, that works on a man who is really horny, but Cersei isn't. Cersei is still, in this scene, in these various scenes, she thinks about being with these people and how it just isn't, just only Jamie. Only Jamie really works for her. So she's not someone that's, when she's with Lancel, it was because he's a poor copy of Jamie and she wanted some comfort, but it really wasn't the sexual gratification that's a big deal to her. It's humanity, comfort, and contact, but she can really only get it from Jamie, and she doesn't want to admit it because she's Jamie is currently on, you know, is, is a foe. I put that in finger quotes. She's not really a foe, but they're they're in dispute right now. They're arguing right now. And of course, we know that's going to get worse, but she hasn't completely given up on him. Neither has he given up on her completely. So this is obviously very much, not only is she trying to be like Robert, sort of intentionally, but she's being like him in ways not intentionally and talking like him and using sex as power in a way that is not only misogynist, but fits in with her way of her own self-hatred. She's a misogynist. She's a woman that's a misogynist. And she's trying to be what she hates because she also doesn't like Robert. But she has very, she's very wrapped up in all this and doesn't understand it and is very driven by these desires, but they clearly don't satisfy her. They make her feel worse. And they remind her of that trauma with Robert, of what's got to be awful, of many years of spousal rape and abuse. And she's just reinflicting it on someone else. It's very much, a, it's almost straightforward in its expression of how trauma functions. Someone is, experiences trauma later in life, they inflict that trauma on someone else. That's, it's not subtle here. Like she thinks of Robert, what Robert did to her, and she does those things to Tana. And she's drunk while doing it. And Robert was drunk while doing it. And Robert would pass out and forget about it and try to deny it. And it, it, it's unclear how much he was actually denying or forgetting about it because we don't have his POV. Cersei... Well, she's going to keep thinking about it off and on a bit, and we'll, we'll see that. But she tries to deny it ever happened immediately. The chapter ends with her saying it never happened. She's immediately denying it. And of course, it doesn't work. You can't deny your own actions. You can only go so far with that. And, you know, I wonder if Cersei, it is, it's a modern term, uh, or at least is more modernly used. I wonder if Cersei is demisexual, which is, you can really only, 
enjoy sex with someone that you are in love with. And well, debates about whether Cersei's actually in love with Jamie aside, <laughs> it's at least uh, the concept is at least familiar. Certainly seems to apply with Jamie. She does, he doesn't seem to think he could ever be with anyone else. Uh, that he could ever love anyone else like Cersei. And so they, they may both be demisexual. Yeah, and so there's this, all this violence. Not only is there violence against Tana here, there's the violence against Felice and Sinel that's just ugh, really horrific and terrible. So this is just, as Joe says, very succinctly, Cersei is as big an enemy to women as anyone. Yeah. I mean, Kyburn is worse in terms of the direct violence, but Cersei is enabling him. Kyburn couldn't do any of this stuff without her. You can give them an equal share of the blame if you want. It's not super important to parse out exactly what percent of the blame goes well, where. They're both awful. They're both terrible. This is insane how horrific this, tre- this treatment is and how she's just, it's her way of just, I don't want to deal with this. I will consign you to awful, horrible torture rather than deal with this problem that she is partly responsible for creating herself. So she's just becoming more and more like the husband she hated who was a bad ruler, who was drinking to forget, who was drinking and becoming more abusive because of his desire to forget, which is not really possible. You're never going to forget all these things. Now he wants, uh, she wants, she's now trying to do the imposing physicality bit too. Like Tana yields herself to Cersei, maybe thinking that's what Cersei wants or to give her the power, the feeling of power that she's desiring uh, or to play out her trauma in a way that Tana thinks will give her more ability to manipulate Cersei later. Um, it might be worse. It might be the opposite. I'm not sure. I think this might be, this might backfire a little on Tana. It's so hard to be sure because this, we're not long from Tana fleeing the capital after Cersei gets taken captive by the High Septon. And, you know, soon after that, she's forced to do her walk. Really quite interested. It's really also a bit disturbing to see Cersei thinking about the boar and thinking about the boar tearing her open and all that. And it's just the omnipresent violence. It's, it's, it's difficult and powerful, but George isn't trying to pull punches here. He's trying to show you, especially those of us who, who don't have firsthand experience with this, knowing what um, this might do to a woman's psyche, having this uh, trauma in their background. And... I don't know how authentic it seems, but it's, we didn't have a lot of people commenting saying it's not authentic. So I don't know. I mean, it's not something people are out there wanting to share a lot about. So maybe let's move on. Jamie thinks of Meriwether next chapter, uh, thinking of the older Meriwether, this, the current Meriwether's grandfather and how he was the chuckler. <laughs> and here we have this line I referred to earlier. Lord Meriwether nodded. A diversion. Stannis is more cunning than we knew. Your grace is clever to have seen through his ploy. Yeah, don't forget that's Tana's husband. So (laughs) this guy who is like over the top with his praise of Cersei, clearly lying. He's like, he doesn't think she's cunning. (laughs) He doesn't think she's clever. And so again, another... uh, it's another one of those many Ares comparisons. The Ares had a Meriwether who was the chuckler laughing at any joke he made because he wanted to just give Ares what he wanted. And here we have a similar thing. And she's coming up short on Bronn, thinking, oh, Bronn was no more than an annoyance to be sure. She thinks this even after all this, even after Bronn seizes Stokeworth, kicks out Lady Felice and all that, she still just doesn't think of Bronn as much of a threat even after this. 
So again, but we've seen this so much from Cersei taking things too lightly and falling apart in a way. It's amazing how she lays into Felice in her own mind, thinking how badly Felice messed this up. Meanwhile, Cersei's plans are about to fall apart just as epically as Lady Felice's did with perhaps consequences just as grave. Interesting too, great catch by Nina. Marjorie seems to have known about the raid on the shields even before Cersei or at the same time as Cersei, but through different means. It wasn't necessarily Pycelle that told them both, um, but maybe it was. Maybe we're just seeing them right after they woke up and, and Pycelle just told her and she's responding. But it's, it's possible that uh, we're seeing a little bit more of the Tyrell uh, intelligence service behind the scenes here and showing how she gets her information through some other means than uh, through the regular court uh, reporters, so to speak. Court reporter not being used in the normal context. Another quote that uh, has some extra meaning to it. At night, Cersei sometimes heard soft sounds, even in her own apartments. Mice in the walls, she would tell herself, no more than that. So yeah, little birds, little mice, that is what Varys used to call them. They were called little mice when he worked over in Essos, in Mir and in Lys. Mir, by the way, Taina of Mir, of course, another thing we associate with, for, for perhaps a reason that Taina is an agent of Varys. And it's also a reference to Lovecraft's Rats in the Walls story, which happened at night. There's the sound of rats in the walls. It's, it's of course, a horror story. And, and uh, obviously, we've talked plenty about how George is influenced by Lovecraft. Mice in the Walls, she would hear, indeed, there are people listening to you, Cersei, and they are probably Varys's people. She thinks of uh, how maybe Rollin Storm will kill Loras and Loras will kill Rollin like Eric and Arik, which is neat that she associates that together. They're not related, obviously, like Eric and Arik were twin brothers, but that did happen at Dragonstone. So it's like, hey, Cersei is a little uh, on point with her history lesson there. That's neat. Okay, that's it for that one. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We're Jamie Five. The wit and wisdom of Jenna Lannister, a.k.a. a game of telephones. Return to River Run, just as before we were returning to Derry for the first time in a long time. It's been more recent that we've been at River Run. It's a more important location. We were there, obviously, in midway through Storm of Swords. It's a major place, and it's good to see again, but uh, the circumstances could be better, but it's still an interesting spot. Jamie is uh, laughing a bit here. As, as we said last week, he's having more fun with his compatriots on the march, like being around squires and knights and stuff, he's more of in his element. But again, his laughter dies. When he speaks to everyone and he sees all the problems and how mismanaged the siege is and how crappy the frays are and how so much suffering there is and how bleak the situation with the siege is because of the Blackfish doing a really good job of storing food and, and all that and making, the, making things formidable for them. And, if, and the chapter ends with Jenna telling him that, no, Tywin is more like Tyrion than you. 
or the other way around, really, but still, same difference. And of course, also near the end of the chapter, his confidence get, takes another hit as he, he goes to his nightly sessions to fight Sir Illin and thinks, ah, now I'm, I'm, I'm doing better this time. And no, not really. It was Sir Illin was just taking, taking it easy on him and then laughs at him again. So it's the death of laughter in this case is death is laughing because we associate Sir Illin with death and death is laughing at Jamie. One of the fawning points made in this chapter shows itself almost immediately. Tywin is said to be a man seen once in a thousand years, and maybe that's an exaggeration, but if he were alive, the siege would likely not be so sloppy. Just him, just even if he had nothing to do with it directly, just him being alive, they wouldn't want, no one would want Tywin to find out they managed it so badly. <laughs> so it's not only Cersei's misrule is causing a trickle-down effect of bad leadership elsewhere, but the lack of Tywin is causing that same trickle-down effect in a different manner. Just Lannisters aren't being as tough and strong and organized and disciplined, and they don't fear reprisal from above. And, well, that's what happens. So here's the first line. The trumpets made a brazen blare and cut the still blue air of dusk. So it's not this horn, not that horn, not these trumpets. We do have a reason to mention different horns. The horn of Herrick, one horn held by Sir Kenneth of KC, who blows it when they arrive at Heriveron. It's the third time and, all, and last time that horn is blown. So he blows it three times throughout these short Jamie chapters. And when it happens, it brings a man in all black to the top of the walls, Brendan Tully. And this was another man who Jamie idolized like Sir Arthur Dane, though more from a distance. He did meet him as a boy, as we see in this chapter, and we'll get to into more detail next time. It's uh, another person who, he, who uh, he wanted to be like when he was young and mm, isn't really that way as an adult, as it turns out. Mentioned a lot in recent chapters is the War of Nine Penny Kings. It comes up here as uh, a mention because Blackfish fought in it, and so did Tywin, Kevin, and Tig, meaning Tiget, uh, their other brother who died. And... So did Black, uh, so did Barrison Selmy, so did Septon Maribald. And well, it was the war that defined the generation before a lot of the men who were of age, youngish age, to fight in Robert's Rebellion. It's almost like each generation sort of has its defining war. Not every generation does, but the last few do. So yeah, the, the war that defined Tywin and Hoster Tully and Littlefinger's dad, and the big war of their generation was the War of Nine Penny Kings. And so these older folk. Like Maribald, that's their perspective, is remembering that war. Whereas a lot of the younger folk like Ned and Jamie, that formative experience for them was the war's Robert's Rebellion. We, of course, did two episodes on the War of Nine Penny Kings with Stephen Atwell. We hope you check those out. Certainly Septon Maribald and all these other characters get mentioned in there, as well as some other figures like Maylis the Monstrous. Another really important theme here it's it's almost like a joke. It's presented sort of jokingly as Sir, Sir Davin is, is a bit of a jokester. He's funny. He puts people off their seriousness by, with his constant stream of humor. Sir Davin snorted. You know the best thing about heroes, Jamie? They all die young and leave more women for the rest of us. He tossed the cup back to the squire. Fill that full again and I'll call you hero too. I have a thirst. By the way, Roy Dotry says that line so well. <laughs> I have a, have a thirst. It definitely adds to Davin's humorousness that uh, Roy Dotry does his voice well. Some A Song of Ice and Fire myth 
perhaps touched on there. Like I said, it's it's said sort of jokingly, sort of offhand. By the way, you know, Ashea is is one of the people leading the charge in getting House of the Dragon referred to as Hot D. Yeah, we already have Hot U with House oh, of the Undying. You're right. I never really thought about Hot U. Somehow, yeah. I think it's because I don't spell U with a U, so I would <laughs> never have thought of it. But yeah, Hot D, we're gonna be we're gonna be competing with Hat of the Day. <laughs> For hashtag dominance, but pretty sure a Game of Thrones property might beat Hat of the Day. Yeah, so get ready, folks. We're still a ways away from that time, but... but get ready for some hot tea. Yeah. For now, we'll stick with the hot you. And there's a line that I'll quote there. It's the shape of shadows. Morrow's not yet made. Drink from the cup of ice. Drink from the cup of fire. So he's just... He'll fill that cup again. I'll call you hero two. I have a thirst. Drink from the cup of fire. Drink from the cup of ice. That might be a stretch to connect these two concepts, but... What's not a stretch is the idea of heroes dying young in this story or just in general. Also, the ice and fire theme is present as Jamie is thinking of his nightly dance, just as Sir Waymar did. He's, Sir Waymar called, you know, called it dancing with that other. But we have this line as well. Stay vigilant. There are wolves about. They rode back along the Red Fork to the ruins of a burned village they had passed that afternoon. It was there they danced their midnight dance amongst blackened stones and old, cold cinders. Blackened stones, old, cold cinders. Yeah, like that is very strong ice and fire thematics. You've got the fire is gone, but its presence has well been felt. The cold and the destruction remains. Yeah, this is, they're all traveling in a, in a huge party and sneaking off to practice swords, which again reminds us of Arya and Micah. <laughs> very recently, they would sneak away from the main group to fight with their wooden swords and so no one could see them. I have this random thought that all this started, a lot of this started because of Nymeria biting Joffrey. And you wonder, you know, there's a million different ways to theorize about how Bloodraven may have affected the story or done little things here and there to change the direction of things. But maybe he jumped into Nymeria for a second and caused that bite to happen. Who knows? It's this We'll probably never know, but it's another another one to throw on the list of maybe Bloodraven did that. <laughs> so it's a, it's a bit striking from there to think about all these different things. I'm, I'm bringing up several different themes all at once, and well, I'm going to bring up another one here. Look at look at this weird symbolism. I really am slightly puzzled by this scene after Sir Ellen stops playing with Jamie and 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 knocks his sword out of his hand and knocks him down. He does this. He made that clacking sound that might have been a laugh and drew his sword up Jamie's throat till that point came to rest between his lips. Only then did he step back and sheathe his steel. Yeah, it's kind of strange, right? Like they're having their sword fighting practice and, and Sir Ellen really just like bullies him a little here. <laughs> and he's like, kiss my sword, kiss it, kiss it. You know, what is he? Is this like a... I don't know. I Homage see to his own like, tongue. Yeah, being, I kind of see it out. like that, where he's like, this could happen to you just as easily. Yeah. Kind of thing. I, it, it's really interesting. And Jamie doesn't seem put off by it. He's just more like disappointed in not being good at fighting and uh, doesn't seem to react to this, you know, being looked down on like this. But it's it's really interesting. And I'm, I'm not sure what's going on exactly. I like your take. I do think Jamie will become good at fighting. Not good, but decent uh, in the long run, even though in this scene, he's like, feeling a little bit hopeless about it. But yeah, back to the death of young heroes, because this I was trying to bring up several points here to set that up. Joe brings up how this applies to Jamie. Jamie is 
that has that metaphorical death, same along along the same lines as the elder brother saying that the man he was died and that the hound is dead, but Sandra Clegane is alive. Similar sort of rebirth style uh, metaphorical context where the Kingslayer is dead, right? This isn't, Jamie is not the Kingslayer anymore. People still call him that, but he's really not that man. He's Golden Hand the Just now, perhaps, or maybe he's just Jamie Lannister, but he's not the Kingslayer, so to speak. So that version of him is dead. Daenerys, though. Is Daenerys going to be a young hero who dies? Loras, we just saw. Brienne, maybe. Sir Talbert Sari. I mean, that's a smaller version of that. He bravely faced Victorian, who he didn't have probably much chance against, but he did not shirk that duty. He did what he had to do and paid the ultimate price. Now, what about Peck? Peck is the one we bring this all up for. That's, that's who, who, he's the, the, the seed for this conversation. And what did Peck do? Josman Peckleton, he killed two knights and captured two others as a 15-year-old who can barely grow a mustache during the Battle of the Blackwater. That's damn impressive. Does he have some kind of future? Maybe. Is he just going to be another victim of uh, an unfortunate, sad victim of the Brotherhood Without Banners under Stoneheart? Is she going to is he going to die uh, like Pod almost does? Is he going to be found hanging from a noose too? I don't know. Speaking of Podrick, will Podrick and Peck ever get to hang out? <laughs> Joe, Joe hopes they, they form into Peck Pod. <laughs> into uh, one combined hero. So the golden color hasn't bled out from Jamie like Cersei and even Davin say. They say that he's like, Davin makes a similar friendlier observation about what Jamie looks like now, saying he looks gaunt and not as much color. But really, he does have a lot of gold. It's concentrated in his fist. All that gold isn't gone. It's just in one place. Big flaming hand like Victorian's fist, right? It's a similar concept. Same process too. Nearly dying of an infection to emerging with a new outlook. Victorian's powers are more literal and it's not his sword hand, so... Hmm. But on the other hand, there's no weird magic going on that might be a bad be a bad thing in the long run. Jamie's is more metaphorical, but still very prominent. That gold hand sticks out, very visible. It's more of a real change for him, but Victorian's probably a different person too. Just he hasn't changed for the better in the sense of he isn't a better person to other people. He's not more sensitive or ethical, but he is different. <laughs> he, may, he might be changing for the more uh, epic way of the more battle style change. Um, and his is maybe permanent, whereas Jamie's can be taken off when he needs to take it off. Just like John Connington, uh, not so easily removed. While Cersei is having disturbingly violent thoughts about Tana and Robert and the boar and all that over with sex as a nearby theme or directly related theme, Jamie is thinking about Cersei cheating. So it's as somewhat related to sex, but in a different way. And he's thinking of smashing her teeth to splinters as if he was Gregor, like Gregor did to Pia, because he's thinking of Pia and those these thoughts kind of coalesce a bit. And, well, that's interesting too, because Gregor obviously is becoming Cersei's protector while he's thinking of Gregor smashing her. Of course, Gregor also smashed Oberyn's face in a similar manner to teeth to splinters. Jamie did see that, but um, he doesn't think of it here but it might be subconscious. So that's dark, and but very noteworthy. And just the idea that he would feel this level of violence towards her for cheating, being with another man, is really intense, right? Like that's, 
that's pretty toxic. Um, obviously, <laughs> Jamie's not near as bad as Cersei with violent imagery, violent thoughts, and actual violent deeds, you know, since recent times. But yeah, seeing Jamie in that mind state is really shows where he might be going later. You know, we, we all wonder if he's going to come full circle in a bad way, do a lot of good deeds, but eventually go back to Cersei. Well, if he chokes her to death, like the Valonqar suggests, well, it's not smashing her face in, but it's similar. It's, it may be foreshadowing for, for that. I mean, George maybe doesn't want to give that away. If George had him imagining choking Cersei, then that would be a little too on the nose, wouldn't it? Or on the throat. Ha. Jenna Lannister, a big feature of this chapter, steals the show from Davin, who is funny and a bit interesting, but she's far more interesting and has far more insight into more important characters. Incredible how much insight she gives into Lannister family members of a variety of them from multiple generations and very efficient. Sean was like, she's the Lannister Queen of Thorns. Yeah. It's like, I, yeah, she's great. I wish she was in the show. But yeah, here's a quote. Tyget tried to be his own man, but he could never match your father. And that just made him angrier as the years went by. Jerrion made japes better to mock the game than to play and lose. But Kevin saw how things stood early on. So he made himself a place by your father's side. So this is people we haven't even met. Like, this makes so much sense for Jerrion and Tygett and things we've learned before about them. Because Jerrion was the, like, distant, like, mocking the process kind of guy. And she just says it so well. Better to mock the game than to play and lose. That just so succinct and perfect and manages to fill out these characters so much more. It gives us an incredible amount of new wealth on this Lannister family. And how they all were just so under Tywin's shadow and even the ones who were in his shadow had to adjust. What Kevin adjusted. It's like, okay, I'm living in a shadow. That's how it is. Whereas Tygett tried to get out of his shadow and Jerrion mocked the shadow. I don't know. <laughs> but they all have this mockery and sarcasm thing is a really common theme throughout all the Lannisters. Even Tywin does it. Tywin's a hypocrite and he doesn't laugh, but he is sarcastic and mocking towards other people that's raised in this chapter that, no, he, Jamie's like, next, you're going to tell me Tywin laughed. He's like, no, no, he didn't do that. But he, you know, did smile for a few things, which backs up what Cersei was saying a few chapters ago. But more on that in a minute. First of all, this Lannister humor thing, right? They all have this in common. Tyrion, mocking sarcasm. Cersei, mocking sarcasm. Jamie, mocking sarcasm. Kevin, less of it, but it's there. Mocking sarcasm. Davin, we just see it. Jenna, right here. I mean, I can't think of a Lannister that doesn't have it except maybe Lancel. And Lancel's just been through so much. Little, yeah. Little Tommen? Little Tommen, maybe. Well, he's, yeah. Maybe little Marcella. Little Marcella has it a little bit. Joffrey's not smart enough for sarcasm. Yeah. So, <laughs> there's, yeah, if, incest throws it off. Right? <laughs> it's too much. She also echoes the chorus, that is Jenna, Emma echoes the chorus of how bad Cersei rearming the faith is. She understands it far more than Jamie does. And, but she convinces Jamie of it. She's like, look at, look at how bad this is. But she's also seems wary of Cersei in general. Look at this quote. Some queer tales have been reaching us of late, Lady Jenna said after Jamie dismissed Pia and his squires. A woman hardly knows what to believe. Can it be true that Tyrion slew Tywin? 
Or is that some calumny your sister put about? Yeah, like where she goes with that. She's like, really? Tyrion killed Tywin? And the, her first most likely thought for what, what might really be true is that it was a lie from Cersei. So she, she, very under, she very much understands the type of person Cersei is, that Cersei would do that sort of thing. Yeah, even disregarding Tyrion, it's, it's hard to believe that there was kinslaying in your family when it's so discouraged. Yeah, and Who especially, would it? especially with the circumstances, like, wait, wasn't Tyrion locked captured? Up, yeah. Wasn't he locked up? Like, how could that even be possible? So there's definitely good reasons to doubt it. But that's not the point. The point is what Jenna thinks it was instead. And she goes straight to Cersei's lies. And you wonder what Jenna's heard. Where, what's her source of information? Has she talked to Kevin recently? Kevin went back home to Casterly Rock. And did Kevin pass through here? Yes, he did. We know for sure he did because Davin says so. And he apologized to Kevin. He's like, yeah, you know, I didn't want this. So it's interesting too, actually... Kevin's shadow is over all these chapters because Kevin left before Jamie, went to go fight some outlaws, went to go west. So a lot of these areas, like he's been, he went to Derry first. He helped Lancel get set up there, then he left. So Jamie is sort of following in his footsteps, literally. Uh, and yeah, so that, that's perhaps where some of Jenna's attitudes are coming from here. I think some of it's on her own because Jenna's clearly an independent thinker, has her own ideas, very insightful. But she may have also be speaking to things she learned recently from Kevin, who Kevin, of course, is a very big distruster of Cersei from, and from a more firsthand perspective. Like, Jenna's been off page and has only been hearing about what Cersei's done, whereas Kevin's been on the front line seeing the direct results of Cersei's decisions, seeing Cersei's behavior front, front and center and all that. And is going to see it even more when she goes back, when he goes back to uh, become regent. <laughs> Funny, too, again, Jamie and his loss... I'm sorry for your loss as well, Joffrey, the dwarf said. What loss, says Joffrey, when Tyrion's trying to uh, say, be courteous about Robert dying. He's like, what loss? <laughs> Compare that to this line here when Jenna says, will they make you a gold father to me? He's like, I'm sorry about your loss. And Jamie's like, oh, no, don't worry. I got a new handmaid. And she's like, I was talking about your dad. <laughs> like my brother, you know, like, yeah, nice hand. But I'm talking about the life, not the body part. So <laughs> that's pretty good. But it's also the same recurring theme. Another one couched in humor. It's a really interesting factor in this chapter is that there is a lot of humor here, but it's all not really that funny. <laughs> it's like the jokes are covering up bad things or covering awful things. Uh, it's like gallows humor. Almost literally gallows humor because we have, you know, the, the whole fake gallows set up here at River Run. <laughs> that was not a pun purpose. That was not a purposeful pun. It just kind of made itself. So there's also a suggestion, which is amusing that it happens to come amidst a discussion of Freys, who within the Frey household, there's apparently lots of sisters sleeping with brothers and brothers sleeping with half sisters and all sorts of cheating and just whatever is going on over there. The idea, the notion that maybe Jenna cheated on Emmett. And uh, that's certainly raised in this chapter. Uh, so it's possible. Maybe Jenna's had some lovers. But Cleos Frey seems like his son, right? We, met, we got to hang out with Cleos for a while before his death. And he does seem to take after a little bit like his mother and his father, more so his father. So that one is probably right online there. But you never know. 
And the death of Cleos is a subtopic here. And Jamie takes his golden hand off while talking about Cleos, perhaps because his hand was cut off right after that. Cleos is killed by different outlaws, but before they vacate the same location, because Jamie and Brienne start fighting, well, then the brotherhood or the brave companions show up, and well, soon enough, Jamie is handless. So it might be because he thinks of it as a low point or just it's, it's, it's a tough memory for him. Not really sure. This line from Emin Frey, good, goodness gracious, Emin Frey is easy to laugh at and look down on, right? <laughs> he says, I am the lawful Lord of Riverrun and I will not have it reduced to a smoking ruin. It's a strange comment. Like he's an over-the-top guy, but who's threatening to make Riverrun a smoking ruin? Even if they storm the walls, no one's talking about burning the place. Is he thinking of Cersei burning down the Tower of the Hand and thinking that applies to Jaime too? Or is he thinking of Tywin and the, and the reigns of Castamere and how he just destroyed Castamere rather than make them submit? On a meta level, it makes me wonder if River Run has something to worry about. I agree. That, that's basically was going to be my next point. Uh, so I'm glad you thought of it too. So you're, you're kind of on the same line of thinking here. It's like, it's kind of hard to imagine that Daenerys will come and burn River Run, but yeah, we a, just got through talking about Euron having a dragon and, and being like Aemon One Eye, who just flew around the Riverlands torching castles. Yeah, my next com- co- connection would be, you know, your thought about uh, fight against the others being, you know, down closer to the Riverlands. Yeah, that that would be a reason for dragons to be flying around there. That's a good point. Yeah, like maybe the undead take River Run and. And they, yeah, something like that is possible. If dra- if you're on or someone, I don't know. Yeah, like there's the, reasons for them to be around, frolicking around. Riverrun would make a really interesting site for winter to come to. Like if the rivers freeze over, mm. you know, like that natural defenses are, were nullified by extreme cold. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes! That's a cool idea, but the phrase hate when this when winter comes, everyone can just walk over. <laughs> yeah, it's like nah, they don't need our bridge anymore. It's like these guys. They built a thousand bridges. (laughs) A thousand bridges in one. She knows that Emmon's not going to relent on the point of River Run, uh, even though he's not a formidable man. He's a whiny man and has, you know, his legal claim. She makes a really great parallel point about how Lancel is being a lot like Jamie. How he's like, we've been talking about that too, but Jenna notices it well, how... It's a very similar concept to take a vow and protect a big leader. Whereas Jamie did that to protect the king. It's not that different. Lancel's taking a vow and swearing to protect and defend the High Septon, right? And kind of eschewing family for all that, eschewing marriage. And uh, the vow is different. The devotion is different, but it requires the same sacrifices. Um, somewhat similar anyway. Jamie thinks, again, that we talked about this last chapter because it, it, it's relevant in, in so many different ways. He thinks she must have been fair indeed to have been worth a kingdom. And he's thinking of Jane Westerly. But that's not the point at all, is it? One, no, she, I mean, she's fine looking, I suppose, but no one goes around talking about Jane Westerly being incredibly beautiful. That's not the point. The point is they had a relationship. Maybe in the long run, they wouldn't have worked out as a couple, but they were in love. That's what he gave up. It wasn't her beauty. And that's all, this speaks back to our same point with Helen of Troy. Look, 
Helena Troy said to be like absurdly beautiful. And the gods even say that's part of the story is that even the gods picked her to be that beautiful. But Paris of Troy, a prince of an extremely powerful region, that guy could have any woman he wanted that wasn't someone else's wife. He, he did want someone's wife, as it turned out. But like, I really don't think he, he was like, oh my God, there's no one else this beautiful around. And it just doesn't seem very likely. I think it was his feelings for her, which were, to be fair, her beauty is wrapped up in that. But it's not the point. It's not the only thing. Just as it isn't the point for Cersei. Cersei's really, really beautiful. But Jamie didn't fall in love with her because of her beauty. I mean, they've been together since they were kids. That wasn't a factor when they were young. It was, I mean, maybe eventually. But it's their love that matters. And he's basically giving up a lot for her or had given up a lot for her. He gave up a ton for her. I, I would say, I, I, this is very insignificant, but it's not like they were ugly kids. Right, it matters, to, to be but fair. it's not all about it. Yeah, that. it's not all about it, but uh, it's not like Cersei was some ugly duckling that yeah. then blossomed. And it's the same thing with Liana. Like, Liana, pretty, I guess, but no one, like, she's not cited as being incredibly beautiful, right? She's just cited as being this tragic figure that people loved or that they had this attraction to, but it wasn't like she's super hot. You know, that wasn't the thing with her. It was, there was, there was real, like, relationship stuff. Like, people got to know her and liked her or what have you. And sure, the, her looks help. Like, they opened the door. You know, maybe that's the reason they approached her in the first place. Yeah. But it, that, it, it's, it wasn't come, come for the pretty face, stay for the pretty face. No, maybe come for the pretty face, stay for the personality and the love, right? That's, that's not why the king, it wasn't worth a kingdom. That's kind of the point. But I think sometimes in the books, they recognize that everyone has different forms of beauty. Yeah, that too. Like, whereas yeah. obviously Liana, as, as she was, recall, as, if you recall, she was referred to as like a wild beauty. And if Jamie- And, and Elia yeah. is a delicate beauty. Yeah. And, so like and it's different. Cersei, I don't know what kind of beauty she is, a scary beauty. Yeah, just a ra- radiant, I guess is what they call her. You yeah, know, radiant. Gets brought yeah. Up a few times. I think like, she might just be like the most traditional beauty. Yeah, she's the blonde bombshell type, I guess. Yeah. So. <laughs> Jamie is arguably going to give up a lot for Brienne. We'll have to see what happens there. And that'll be for beauty, you know, like the beauty, like it's a different beauty standard for Brienne, but it's not about physical attraction necessarily either. So it is just setting aside these physical traits. That's not what these people are doing here. They're not giving up kingdoms for looks or for a pretty face. No, there's way more to it than that, but it's also... So it's not just that, it's also him not realizing how much that applies to him. But so many other characters too, right? As a true sister of Tywin Lannister, this is some some good thoughts from Nina here about Jenna. Jenna's hyper-aware of all the dynastic delicacy around the Riverrun situation. She knows that there are a number of better blood claims to Riverrun still extant. Even putting aside the imprisoned Lord Edmure and his unborn child, claims that look far better than the paper crown Uh, Emin Frey is so desperate to keep on hand. Uh, he's just you know waving it about. Obviously, we've seen the value of a paper shield, especially as it pertains to Cersei. <laughs> just tears it right up. Where Jamie dismisses Robert Aaron as a little boy with no dynastic interest in a faraway Riverlands castle. Jenna knows that. She's like, yeah, that's not the point. Robert Aaron isn't the point himself. His claim is the point because someone could lead him or lead a claim in his name. And that someone could be like the Blackfish, who is quite formidable and quite familiar with the Veilman and has those connections. So it is a big deal. It is noteworthy that Emin Frey's claim is weak. He's complaining about something. He's whining about something. But it is a real 
threat. He's not wrong that his hold on River Run is not that strong. And I'd be concerned about Derry if I were the Lannisters, Nina writes. And Jenna, again, realizes this a bit by pointing out that they should have gotten Derry instead of uh, Lancel because they are more loyal. They aren't, they're more solid and it's more important to keep Derry and have this spot so close to King's Landing on lockdown. And well, she also says it's too late. The decisions have been made and you can't undo them now. But she's making the kind of decisions and, and observations that, oh boy, if she was at the Capitol, I don't know how kind of a relationship she would have with Cersei, but she would make a fantastic advisor. She's just nailing it here. It just, there's room for her to be wrong about some of these things. We're not 100% sure in every case, but she seems like she's nailing it. The phrase, of course, we're going to spend more time on the phrase later because they're a bigger feature of later uh, Jamie chapters here. But let's at least get our bearings. We've talked about uh, Merritt Frey off, you know, in the other chapters and Ryman, but he's, his insights, rather, Merritt's insights in his one chapter gave us a lot of, of understanding of how the Red Wedding broke down in terms of logistics. And Ryman, we know here, is one of the main uh, instigators, one of the main planners. He was the one who uh, led the attack inside the castle. Uh, he wasn't as important as, say, Aenys Frey or Lothar Frey, but he was up there. He's just one of the main reasons the siege is going terribly. So if he had had a more important role in the Red Wedding, it might not have gone well. But uh, yeah, he's not very capable. He's just drinking and, having, and, and spending all his time with women. Very... Lame, just not a good leader. About as bad as it gets. Dereliction of duty, showing the, the showing off the micro version of the themes we were discussing with regards to Cersei and what responsibilities the liege uh, has. He clearly doesn't think much of his responsibilities at all. And Joe says maybe we could be a little empathetic to him because his son Peter was hanged by outlaws recently, but. He's not exactly going hard after these outlaws in the area either. It doesn't seem, yeah, so it's it's hard to even give him that piece of credit. Davin uh, Lannister himself jumps in and lists Edwin Frey, who's also one of the welcoming party at the Red Wedding. He's the one that Catelyn slapped right before things went really bad when Catelyn realized what was happening. So he is uh, described as full of hate by Davin, and uh, Davin seems to be accurate here. Joe says he's a good fray flag bearer and that he's ambitious and uncaring. So he's a little, he's a lot more dangerous than Ryman because Ryman's not ambitious, uh, though he is uncaring. <laughs> Davin, let's talk about Davin. He's actually more at the beginning of the chapter, but we're, we're kind of saved him for last. He's a warden of the West, which is strange. He doesn't really seem that capable for it. It's, it's, it's off, it's a little easy to miss that he's not super competent because there's so much incompetence around him. And he's friendly and funny. But he also volunteered to be the forager for Tywin. And the foragers were Gregor, Hote, and Amory Lorch. Foraging is a really crappy word because foraging and, you know, sometimes, it, I mean, when it's meant distinctly, when it's meant literally, it's, yeah, just going out into the woods and finding mushrooms and berries and things. But in this context, foraging means finding small villages and taking their stuff for your soldiers. 
it's terrible. And, and, and if you're Armory Lorch, you also destroy the place rather than just take all their stuff. That might be the difference here. It would have been better for the Riverlands if Davin was performing these atrocities because he's less atrocious. But nonetheless, it would still be atrocities. And the fact that he was volunteering for that job is a little sketchy. That's usually a job that you... I mean, you shouldn't want that job, right? (laughs) Who wants that job? I don't think he's doing it because if it's not me, someone worse would be doing it. I really don't think that's his attitude. So don't let his amiability and humorousness fool you. Again, it's just a really low bar around these parts. And so I turn back again to his competence. He doesn't seem incompetent, but this whole situation's a mess. And what has he done about it? Nothing really. He hasn't seemed to have improved it. He maybe isn't making it any worse, but he's, he's the warden of the West. And he's basically just, eh. <laughs> he's given Jamie some interesting insight on the people. But as far as why the siege isn't working, he's mostly just throwing his hands like, yeah, Blackfish. He's just, I don't know what to do. He's better than me. <laughs> interesting too is his, his vow. He took a vow. We've seen these, a couple of people take these vows around here. Maybe that should have been a theme. We talked about last episode about the weird guy, Lambert Turnberry, taking a eye, wearing an eye patch over his good eye as a vow until the hound is slain. And we have Lyle Craycall taking a vow to come slay the hound. And we have these guys taking vows at the Quiet Isle to be silent. And we have uh, Lancel and his vows. Davin took his vow quite a while back. It was to not sh- cut his hair until he avenged his father. And that's an interesting place to have it all wrapped up because his father, Stafford Lannister, was killed by Rickard Karstark, a man very wrapped up in a vengeance plotline. So George is really speaking to something there by having all these different characters seeking vengeance over killings that happened in the course of war that neither of them started. Stafford Lannister had nothing to do with starting the war. Rickard Karstark had nothing to do with starting the war. They followed their liege lord and suffered for it. They they fought well, but also didn't fight well. (laughs) Yeah. The secret smile bit fills out a little more. That's really interesting. We had heard that Tywin never smiles, except maybe with Joanna. And then we get filled in that Cersei shared some secret smiles with her father, especially around the Rhaegar marriage. But now Jenna says there was a few other examples too, such as Jamie and Cersei being born and being named Hand, things like that. So there are a few other examples. Tywin did have some extra joy in his life. It has to be others. Jenna grew up with him. Yeah, she knew. He wasn't a humorless child. He was laughing and playing. We know that. A little bit, yeah. He was more serious than most kids, but yeah, he had to occasionally. (laughs) What is the age gap between them though, now that I think about it? You know, hmm. good question. It like, can't be I, that big yeah, because Tywin I, was 10 when he rejected the, stood up against her marriage. Okay. And so, yeah, then she was, be, yeah. She so. must have been like six or seven, I think. Okay. So they're of an age where they would play together. Yes. Yes. And yeah, she says Tywin was big even when he was little. And that's really interesting. It's like another just example of George just showing, look, humanity is so complicated. Relationships are so complicated. Family is so complicated. We have so many reasons to hate Tywin. But Jenna has a good reason to like him because he stood up for her as a little girl. And that's formative. That's a, what you're going to do. Stop thanking him for that. Like magically not have the, these formative feelings that she had as a little girl because Tywin's not so, such a great man anymore. 
doesn't go away so easily. Even Jamie and Cersei still defend Tywin. Even Tyrion still defends Tywin, even though he was by far the treated the worst of the batch. It's just the nature of father, uh, father, child relationships, mother, child too, that you stand up, even stand up for them and defend them, even when they've abused you. This brings us to another point that Tywin's gifts are poison too. Tywin, like Euron, in a different sense though, Euron is manipulative. His gifts are intended to be poisoned. He knows that they're going to screw you later. Tywin's gifts are poisoned because of his legacy and his legacy is toxic and because so many people were made an enemy of and they there's so many people out there that want to kill Tywin or his children because of Tywin's actions. Jamie, it's not even necessarily anything that Jamie and Cersei did, although they certainly have uh, atrocities at their own that can be laid at their feet too that had nothing to do with Tywin except maybe because of his up him raising them. So many things, so many aspects of Lannister power are falling apart because of the way they were set up. They were created. They were taken by force. They were bought with blood. And they were never given the type of loyalty that we're seeing with Jamie's prior chapter and the winning of loyalty through love. Tywin never had that. We've been over this ad nauseum that Tywin was feared, not loved. If Tywin was loved then Jamie would be basking in the legacy of his father, being like, going around and saying, your father was good to us. I want to return that favor and be good to his son. That's kind of what we see with Ned. People do that. People do good things for Ned's children because of Ned did good things for them. But with Tywin, it's the opposite. Only a few people have this regard for Tywin to the extent that it's going to pay dividends for his kids. They get to hang on to the power he carved out for them, but that is very much challenged, very much at odds, and very much falling apart because the type of power Tywin wielded was the type of power that only he can wield. They're not up to it. They can't rise to that level. That's partly why it's all falling apart because it needed Tywin to operate. We talked about the Horn of Herak blowing again here, um, but there's some other allusions to the others. Uh, fishy stuff going on around here, but not House Tully fishy. Jamie symbolically indicates the taking of the castle is more important than dealing with Lord Beric. Hmm. This is the continuation of the ongoing theme that these wars of mankind supersede the War for the Dawn, which we as readers know is a misprioritization, most likely. Here is a very interesting quote. My scouts report fires in the high places at night. Signal fires, they think as if there were a ring of watchers around us and there are fires in the villages as well. Some new god? No, an old one. Yeah, Relor. Interesting to see that Relor worship is spreading in the Riverlands just as the faith is being rearmed. We talked about that several times. That keeps popping up as an important theme, something coming. And remember, of course, as well, the idea that more Relorists will come to the continent with or without Danny. With Danny, or because of Danny, I guess I could say. With that, we wonder about the coordination between the Brotherhood Without Banners and potentially future coordination with Reloris and the Brother Without Banners. And who knows how that's all going to fall out. They still have Thoros with them. So he's a connecting point to maybe more recruits or to, I don't know. We're going to see Thomas Seven's next chapter inside River Run when things get settled. Here's another example as part of the chapter of 
off-screen activity that we're not sure who to credit it to, but it's probably the Brotherhood Health Banners. Quote. None bore any wounds. Plainly, they had yielded. Strongbor had grown furious at that, vowing bloody vengeance on the heads of any men who would truss up warriors to die like suckling pigs. So it gives a real impression of being surrounded, right? Like, they're surrounding the castle with their troops. It's a siege. But surrounding them is another sort of secret, softer, darker siege. Surrounded by the Brotherhood, watched by them, watched by these wolves, watched perhaps by supernatural means. Thoros is gazing into the flames. We've seen him successful with that. Part of how the Brotherhood is able to sometimes seem to be in multiple places at once or seem to know what's happening. Not only do they have scouts and spies, but they have supernatural things going on. So there's a lot of angles here. There's so many enemies behind the scenes that Jamie's not aware of that a lot of which are connected to each other. Now, I'm not going to connect R'hllor to the others, but the wolves, the wolves are definitely not seeming to fight against the Brotherhood as far as we can tell, but they are arrayed against the Lannister and Frey armies. It might be for the same reason. And well, they're that might be an even bigger deal when we get to the Winds of Winter prologue, which is supposedly going to be from the point of view of this area. We don't know which character it's going to be. My guess is Sir Forley Prester, who's mentioned in this chapter, but uh, we'll have to see. George has revealed that Jane Westerling will be in it. Not that she's the POV, so we could see Chekhov's wolves finally come into play. And we know for... And, and to be clear, uh, she, he's revealed that she'll be in it and that she will not be the POV. Right. Right, it's not a guess that she won't be the POV. He said that. And we know for darn sure that also because of George's own words that what we saw on TV is not the fate of the dire wolves. It's not going to just be Arya sees Nymeria and goes, hi, good to see you. You being in the rest of the story doesn't make sense because it's not you. That is so not going to... George has basically said the opposite. He hasn't said obviously what's going to happen, but he said, you don't put all those, you know, have all those dire wolves in the story and just do nothing with them. <laughs> so, Chekhov's direwolves are what we're dealing with here. They're going to do stuff. They're going to do real stuff. They're going to do important stuff. And it will probably be not that far in the future, meaning not that deep into Winds of Winter. Speaking of which, it is cold at this siege. Jamie thinks about how cold it is, especially at night. By the end of his arc in this book, not the end of his arc, but by the end of his arc in his book, it's going to be snowing in the Riverlands which blows out any hope of those harvests happening that have been in these various places that they're trying to get going again. The phrase say they don't have enough food. And well, that's not going to help. <laughs> Winter. So this is super cool. A siege of a siege of a siege. Who's besieging who? Yeah, very interesting. The logistics here are important since we're delving into that aspect. Uh, we talked about the phrase not sharing their food, which is another sign of Tywin's legacy. These are the friends that Tywin left his descendants, the type that won't share their food even in starvation. Yep, good choice of friends there, Tywin. And again, the obsession of Ryman and Emmon and their focus on their rights and not duties or the people around them, more of the same there. Uh, we also have to criticize the Blackfish here, both Nina and Joe agree. I agree as well. Uh, he may have done the right thing in terms of military strategy, but what he did was, quote, kick out all the useless mouths. 
and pick the countryside clean. Well, what are those useless mouths doing now? They're probably starving, and he didn't give them perhaps any means to deal with that. Maybe. Maybe he coordinated with the, small, with the, with the Brother Without Banners. There's a small chance that we're blaming Brendan for something he actually took care of on the sly. But if he didn't make plans, if he didn't do something for these people, he's kicking out. It's pure horror for them. They've just were kicked out of their shelter and told, fend for yourself. And there's almost no way to do that. So got to criticize Blackfish a bit if what we're seeing is actually what we're seeing. And Edmure, on the other hand, was the one who brought a lot of them into the castle in the first place because he wanted to protect them. So Edmure taking a bit more of a risk, but ruling perhaps the way a, a lord should rule. Something we cited back at the time when he was still in charge before he lost his lordship that his strategy wasn't the best, but his, but his attention to duty, his prioritization of what's most important about being a lord, two thumbs up on that. Uh, Jamie thinking about giving his squires to Illin versus uh, because of, you know, they're hostages, right? He's got a piper and a page. And those are, it's funny having a page as a squire because you go from page to squire. But this is house page. <laughs> Danny and Barrison have similar thoughts. Like there's hostages given by the slaver families that are really young kids. And Danny's like, I could never execute these kids. Executing hostages is a tough thing when they're uh, little kids you've gotten to know. Yeah, I mean, it, when you say executing, she'll be killing. Yeah, just killing and torturing. Like, so. it's not like... It, it, there's a difference in, in doing it up front, close and personal, versus torching a bunch of people while you're on a dragon. Yeah. Like, she'll kill a bunch of kids. Yeah. I don't have any doubts about that. Yeah. Mm. Okay, one last point, and then we are done with our probably longest... This is our longest Valoritas episode ever. Yeah, we're at three hours, 56 minutes. Good about Lord. three hours, 57 minutes. We've, I've been joking about whether you're going to make hit four hours or not. We'll be just right on it, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah Archmaster Rennie with a great catch that references the Hedge Knight. Jamie thinks about how at least he has both his feet and how you know his feet might be important one day. <laughs> which Dunk, uh, that is exactly what happens. Dunk uh, thinks about how he, Prince Baylor died because of he couldn't have his foot take cut off. He was going to have his foot amputated because of he kicked Prince Arian, as in Arian Brightflame. But uh, instead, he had a trial by combat where Baylor was killed, and uh, that, that really made him anxious and felt full of angst for his foot. He thought maybe his foot was not worth so much as a big prince like that. But Dunk went on to do great things. His feet were, his. the realm did need his feet after all. His feet and his arms, literally. Yeah, his I feet mean, of arms too. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, picture summer all. He had to walk them out of there. Yeah. So don't fret, Dunk. Last week, we covered 159 minutes and 30 seconds of audiobook. This week was 171 minutes, 21 seconds. We are now... 1,494 minutes through 2,030 minutes of the book. That is almost three quarters. We're at 73.6%. So next week, we'll cross the three quarters threshold. Uh, usually, this is when I say check the pod version to see how much is edited out. But this one's going to get split into two different podcast episodes. Pretty much about the same length each, probably. About two hours each. Next time, we'll see how long it takes, but I'm guessing it'll be shorter, but there's some amazing chapters to discuss. 
including Cat of the Canals, Stark Justice in Bravos, aka the Milk of Human Blindness, Samwell Four, the gang sails on the cinnamon wind, aka the one with the fat pink mast. Cersei Eight, Dragonstone has fallen, aka the one with Maggie the Frog. And finally, Brienne Seven, Devils at the Crossroads, aka the one with no chance, no choice. We mentioned a few of our scripted episodes in this one, such as the Joanna Lannister episode, the Nine Penny Kings episodes. We referenced a lot of the plot points in The Forsaken without specifically mentioning it, but that one's out there too. And our Sir Wind in the Mirror Shield episode was obliquely referenced by the talk of Eric and Arik. So I encourage you to check those episodes out if you're looking for more on some of those subtopics. If not, we've got a very big catalog full of other fun episodes, as well as more Valar Reredis to come next week. We'll be back with more. Thanks to Ashea the Kraken for doing so much at once. So many jobs and responsibilities. Speaking of responsibilities and not shirking them and not putting them on other people. <laughs> I hard. wish. Well, actually, on Wednesday, I did put them on other people. You I did made, put your... I made Chloe read the quotes. <laughs> she did such a good job. It worked out. I know. Really well. I was like, once she did it one time, I was like, well, maybe I could make this work, but why? <laughs> but why? Yeah. Well, let's just... This is better. Yes. <laughs> She, you have so much else to do anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks to, to Joe uh, for his great thoughts, to Nina as well for her great thoughts. Maybe uh, we had too many of them this time, <laughs> but no, no. We take as long as we take. Good thoughts are good thoughts. They all deserve to be heard. Uh, there's plenty of hours in the day or the week. We don't have to all get to it at one time. We have 20 fewer hours now after a four-hour stream. <laughs> Thanks to our History of Westeros mods for posting the chapters every week, accompanied with great artwork, leading the discussions over there in our Facebook group, which is very active. Our Facebook group has a lot of conversations going, not just about Valar Reredus, but a lot of things, all of them a Song of Ice and Fire related in one way or another. Not necessarily all of them reread related, though. Flick is entirely focused on the reread. It's the most direct thread about a chapter, nothing else anywhere nearby. A lot of people prefer that. You can't get distracted by your Facebook news feed or anything else. So take your pick. We've got options in between. We have Discord and Slack, which have the focus, but lots of other stuff. You were saying take your pick? Yeah. Maybe flick? Take your flick? Uh, Yes. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld, a.k.a. Claradox.de. The maps behind are his work, and he's been putting in work on his Reach map. His current prediction is for the Reach map to be done on August 8th. That's not long from now. As of this recording, today is... The 26th. July 26th today. So, yeah, we're not far off from that. Also, thanks to Joey Townsend for the History of Westeros regular music. Jesse Kowal for the cover of the regular music, which we use as outro music. Thanks to our Benjineer for making our sound quality as good as it could be. Thank you very, very much to all of our patrons. Anyone who supports us financially, you get extra credit. It's super important for us. We wouldn't be here otherwise. Again, I want to remind you that we have a second way to support y'all, support us now with the the advent of Anchor support. It's an alternate way to support the show financially. I mentioned that at the beginning. Uh, you can find a link in the description of every podcast episode for that. 
Uh, Can I mention something about Patreon? Absolutely. Um, I just want to let everyone know that coming up in the next couple weeks, um, you maybe check in like two weeks, we're doing a purge of people's names who've been on there because Aziz has to read a lot of names. And so if you look in a couple weeks and you should be on there and you're not, please let us know. Yeah, we, what did she did? Ashay was going through and kind of fixing the list. A lot of times when someone deleted their pledge, I would just leave it. Yeah, and so like, (laughs) that's cool. But some people, it's been since 2018 and Aziz has been reading their name for two years. And at a certain point, we should remove it. But also some people were, say, under the Night's Watch and really they're a sworn sword now. Yeah. So a lot of it's moved around, but just do a control F for your name if if you care about that. Yeah, make sure. Or if we still haven't given you a nickname, if we owe you one for some reason, if you slept through the cracks, our apologies, let us know and we'll get that settled ASAP. Um, So please, everyone, uh, we'll be safe this week, as always, and we will see you next time for more... Valar Reredus.